40 years. I mean, you think 13 years is a lot. 40 years the Israelites wandered around the wilderness. Finally now, after all that wandering, with the death of that generation that left, now with the death of Moses, we have his successor, Joshua, who incidentally is a picture of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but Moses would never have taken the Israelites across the Jordan into the Promised Land. That was never going to happen. Why? Has anyone ever heard this? Why? That was never, even before Moses' fall and the humiliation that came with that, Moses was never going to lead the people of God across the Jordan into the Promised Land. Why? Yes, God did say that to him. But even before that, it was never going to happen. Even when Moses thought he was going to do it, it was never, ever going to happen. Because the law can never take us into the fulfillment of God's promises. Do you understand that? Moses, he symbolizes the law and everything associated with it. And the law will never bring us the promises of God. It took a Joshua, whose name is, is the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus. And it's Joshua. And our Jesus, ultimately, who takes the people of God into the promises of God, not through law. John chapter 1, uh, the law came through Moses. What came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. And it's that grace and truth that Jesus and Joshua uh, sets for us that brings us into the fullness of what God has got for us. So look, we don't have time to unpack it fully today. I told me short and I've got a particular focus. But ultimately in Joshua, we're seeing uh, the pre-incarnate, if you like, Jesus. And it's him who finally brings us across our Jordan, not the torrents alone. What's our Jordan? death and into the kingdom of heaven and the future. But for now, I want to look at this situation and I want to draw parallels from it uh, into what, the, what Jesus says to the New Testament and how we can learn from what's gone in the past so that we can apply it to our future. We've got one heading. Uh, look, at the, the, the overall heading is choose this day whom you will serve. But here's our subheading that we'll be working through. Joshua's great challenge. Joshua's great challenge. With the death of Moses, we have Joshua, his successor. They're on the brink of the promised land, but they need to cross the Jordan. Uh, that's the feat in itself, okay? That they've, they've traveled for some 40 years. How long was that journey meant to be? It was a 40-year journey, but how long should it have been? Well, a few weeks the most. Yeah, a few weeks, maybe a few months. Depends how fast you go. I mean, if you were 65 and decrepit, you know, and you know, yeah, you know maybe. Yeah, but you know, for a, for a vigorous young man. <laughs> Where? Where? Hey, hey, you're looking at him, right? Okay. Yeah, no. So it would have taken a long time, but less than a year, several weeks. Okay? Okay. Certainly not 40 years. Okay. There's a story there straight away. We can bring upon ourselves untold miseries 
by doing it our way. Do we understand, do we understand that? We can bring ourselves untold miseries by doing it our way. The Christian is someone who relinquishes hold on their lives. And the Israelites learned that the hard way. Now here they are on the brink of finally possessing God's promises, which should have happened 40 years earlier. Okay, and here's Joshua. Now, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Joshua knows his time is coming towards an end. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of the good promises of the Lord your God has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Now they're about to take a hold of the final one. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And this is his greatest sermon. He spends considerable time now. We have to remember, whenever the Bible is, is, is detailing people's speeches, it's never the whole speech. That's why you're sitting there thinking, that speech I can read in three minutes, and that guy's speech takes 30, 40 minutes. Why is that? That's because it's an abridged version. Okay? Remember that. It's an abridged version. How long do you think his speech really would have been? Someone have a guess. Hours, not an hour. These guys spoke for hours. So get seated and hold on to your seat, okay? Okay, and, and look, it gives them the whole of their history. Uh, verse 2b, the call of Abraham. Verse 3, Abraham's journeys into Canaan. Verse 3b, Abraham, Isaac is born to Abraham. Verse 4, to Isaac, Jacob and Esau are born. Esau, Jacob and his sons, however, have to flee the famine, okay? They find themselves in Egypt, it's great for a time when the Pharaoh who loved e, uh, Joseph was in power, but then things got sour. Uh, there, there was a slavery. In verse 5, there's the escape. And uh, verse 5 and 6, rather, the exodus or the escape from Egypt. Let me just throw you another nugget here. So the exodus, when Jesus was on being transfigured, he was speaking to Moses and Elijah. He says about his departure, but the actual Greek word is actually a reference to this Hebrew word, exodus. Jesus was talking about his forthcoming exodus. Why was Jesus talking about an exodus with Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration? What the heck has his death got to do with the Exodus? Change of circumstances? Go to the promised land and the Lord. Okay, so a bit of all those. Basically, essentially, Jesus' death is the ultimate and real Exodus. Israelites, they were back in the land, but they weren't really free from slavery. You see, all that the exodus of the Egyptians did, it pictured or symbolized the ultimate Moses and the ultimate exodus. And here's Jesus. He is the ultimate Moses who will bring his people, the exodus, okay, out of slavery to what? Not to Pharaoh, but slavery to? To sin and Satan and the root of his exodus and the form of it will be through the death of the of. Not a lamb, but the death of himself. And so he becomes the Passover lamb. He is the exodus for his, his final and ultimate meaning and fulfillment in Jesus. That's the exodus that Israel truly needed. And so verses 6 to 7, the exodus, verse 7b, the 40 years wandering. Verses 8 to 10, God's protection and care in the desert. And here's the wonderful thing about the Lord. 
The Lord disciplines those he loves, yeah? Which means if we love him and, and, and we're consistently stepping out of line, discipline follows. Seriously. But even in that discipline, what does God, what can he, can he not fail to do, even in discipline? Love us. Because it's an act of love. And even in discipline, the Israelites, God cared for them. The shoes did not wear out. There was sufficient food. In fact, they woke up every morning and gathered supernatural sustenance. It's incredible. And so even in discipline, they knew God's protection and love. In verse 11 to 13, Joshua leads the people into Canaan. And so we're looking at the Old Testament as a type, as a prototype. And so if you, if you ever want to know what's the history of the church, you just turn to the Israelites. What were the Israelites? They were people called out of the rest of the earth. What are you? What are you? You're a people called out from the rest of the earth. The Israelites were people loved, not because they were special or unique, but just because he loved them. Deuteronomy 7. I've loved you just because I love you. Why does he love the church? How good is Sylvia? Well, if you knew anything about what I know about Sylvia, you'd know she's not very good. <laughs> he loves us. And look, get this out of your mind. Okay, let me deflate some balloons here, bubbles. You're not lovable. Seriously. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. Okay, what are we? We're objects of Naturally, in ourselves, we're objects of wrath. Okay? He doesn't love you because you're lovable. He loves you because he loves you. He loves the unlovable and loves you enough to come and die for you. And just as he called them out out of slavery into a promised land, he's called us out of slavery into a promised land. So what we're seeing, friends, that in Israel... We've seen the prototype, in engineering terms, okay, of what God was ultimately doing. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. We are what it's been about. It was never about, do you really seriously think that God was only really interested in a, a small group of people on one tiny patch of land? I mean, what about the rest of the place that he made? No, Jesus has always been interested in the world. And the Israelites were a picture, a microcosm of what he wanted to do. He wanted to go into the world and rescue a people to himself, label them his own, mark them out, bring them from slavery, win them with his love, plant them in a land flowing with milk and honey, honey, and live forever in joy. That's what we are. Israel is just a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Now made up of who? Of Jews and Gentiles. There's not, there's not two ways of salvation. Jesus doesn't have two communities. There is one church, the fulfillment of the prototypes, the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to learn, I'll pick up a couple of, and look, our time is running out already, but a few parallels to our lives in the New Testament church. Okay, verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all thankfulness. 
Okay, can I possibly draw... If you're in home groups, shut up. Okay? Okay, yeah, we ignore that. Uh, okay, okay. Can I draw any parallel between this commission to fear God in the Old Testament and the wonderful loving Jesus I know? Is there any parallel? Here he is telling them to fear God. Surely we've left all that behind in the New Testament? Am I being told something? Oh, okay. I, 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 I didn't quite catch that. But, but uh, can we? Have we left all that stuff about fearing God behind? No. It is. How do you know that, Pam? Because what tells you? The Proverbs. It's the beginning of wisdom. We haven't left it behind. Let me read a verse to you from the good old Bible. And these are Jesus' words. And I'll just show you that, that we haven't, before we ever assume, oh, that God of the Old Testament, he was this horrible, angry God, and isn't Jesus wonderful and cute and cuddly? Hey, 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 hey. Nothing's changed. Listen to Jesus in this. I haven't got my glasses, goodness sake, I should start wearing them more. Okay, excuse me, my arms are just about long enough. Okay, listen to what Jesus says. I will show you whom you must fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's he talking about? God. And so the first thing is Joshua says to the Israelites is that they are to, to retain a healthy fear or respect of God. He wasn't their pal, you see. He wasn't their best buddy. You know, you know what you're like with your best buddy? I've seen you guys with your best buddy. You, know, you give them a, a cuddle, you, know, you punch them you know, in the belly, or you slap them on the back. Or if you're an Aussie, you, you know, smash a beer bottle over their heads. Uh, that's what you do, isn't it? Well, that's what Jim does. Um, you know, and, and, and so, uh, he's a transcendent being. He's wrapped in light. He's unapproachable. Do you remember what would have happened when he came down on the mount with Moses? That even if an animal touched the mountain, what would happen? Death. Instant. He is an unapproachable, holy, and awesome, fearful and here's, here's what we told even in, even in Matthew. I want you to notice the condescension of this being. When we pray to him, we now can call him Father. Matthew 6, can you see that? Our Father. But all the time we prayed, he never wants us to forget the reality of his transcendency. So he's our Father where? In my house? Now where is he? In heaven. There's a distance between us and him. It's when Isaiah saw him. He stands in awe. And, and, and he, he quotes three times. It's, it's, it's the number of infinity, as he were, in the old covenant. And he says of God when he sees him. Actually, when he sees God in Isaiah 6, again, if you're in home group, shh, we cover all this stuff in home group, okay? Okay. Um, who does he really see? Which member of the Trinity is he seeing? He's seen Jesus. Okay, I'll talk to you about that another time. He's seen Jesus. And what does he say about him? He is holy, holy, holy. holy. 
And when this holy man of God stands before him, how does he speak about himself? He's in the rest of Isaiah 6. Can anyone remember? How does he speak about himself when he, the holiest man on the planet, most probably, the man of God, and he's standing before God, and what does he say about himself? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He realizes that before God, we are wretches. It's holy, holy, holy. And Proverbs 1 7, that Pam so nicely quoted for us. And nice to hear your voice again. Pam, you have been quiet in my sermons the last few weeks. So, uh, uh, something I said? I lost your voice. Oh, welcome back. Okay. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Christian, one thing we must maintain as we move forward as a church. Okay, however, in out of vogue this may be, okay? We're not going to Ridgehaven to follow what everyone's doing. We're going there to set the trend for everyone else to follow. Okay? We're not going there to follow everybody else. We're going to set the trend for others to follow. Whatever else anybody is doing, whatever other sermons you're hearing, any other church, don't lose sight of this. That God is to be feared. There's to be a holy respect for him a reverence an acknowledgement of his transcendency because what effect does it have on your christianity you do you see if god is such a pal then he won't really care if i sleep with my neighbor because because <laughs> because because you see because he's my pal do you see what i'm saying you see, one of the things that's a safeguard from me committing gross moral sins or any kind of sin is that, hey, I have a healthy respect for God and he won't like this. And if he doesn't like this, it may get painful. Do you understand? It's, it's good to keep a healthy respect towards God okay the next one then he tells them look throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and serve the Lord that lived that lived in Egypt for, for for many many generations what do you think happened to their faith in that time what would naturally happen being exposed day in day out day in day out to all the paganism around them what do you think inevitably happened to their Judaism yeah, yeah, it was a watered-down version of it. It was, it, 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 was a, it was a faith that looked nothing like the original faith, which tells you something about salvation. God doesn't save you because you've got it all right. He saves you because he loves you. They didn't have it right. We have to, we have to imagine this, that the Judaism that Israel were, were practicing, the faith they had at that time, was, was a very watered-down version. And so here he is, they're coming into the new land, he's about to give them the commandments, and well, he's giving them the commandments, and he's telling them, right, okay, he's telling them to be rid of every element of the world they knew, okay, of the worldliness that he contained. And a simple message, if we can just bring it into our, into our world today, friends, is as we move forward in faith and into we trust will be a greater work for God, there's a can I challenge us afresh to consider the calling of faith that Jesus has given us. Look at this, Romans 6. This is what it tells us about our old way of life. We die to sin. 
how can we live in it any longer? That tells me that if I was an avid swearer in my previous way of life, as a believer, and I was actually, I'll say the 16, every other word I uttered was a swear word. Seriously. Okay, what that's telling us is, if that was my former way of life in my world, now what have we done? Now as, a, as those in faith, we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There has to be, and here's the call of the gospel, for faith to be genuine, there has to be a recognised transformation in our lives. Obviously, look, you know, not every one of us had a dirty mouth and said you know, terrible words every other sentence. But whatever it may have been, there has to be a throwing off of that. And here's the challenge, that as we move forward, can I challenge us to reconsider our walk? Uh, have we truly thrown off that old way of life? Here's what Matthew 5, Jesus says in Matthew 5. Here's, here's how... Uh, how our engagement with sin is meant to be. Some of us imagine sin is a bit like a pal. We kind of encourage him out of our life. Thanks, mate, but I don't want you any longer. Could we just go our own way? That's not how you deal with sin. Listen to what Jesus says we deal with sin. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do to your eye? Rip it out, man. I mean, talk about that's That's like saying, do violence. If there's something in your life which is contradicting what Jesus wants for your life, don't negotiate. Don't give it a pep talk. Gouge it out. Go into battle with it, which means take radical action. If where you live means you have to pass places that play with your mind and draw you to sinfulness, get a new house. If where you work is having a detrimental effect to your holiness, get a new job. It means take radical action to remove sin from your life. Jesus says it's, it's sin is such a dangerous thing for believers that unless we take a radical approach to it, we may finally find we never were really believers. He continues, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose whom you will serve. And there's something about the way he presents the truth to these guys which we mustn't lose in faith in Christianity. He, look, can you see, this isn't very winsome, is it? Have you heard of those churches and we are not one of those churches? Seeker-sensitive churches, have you come across those? What are they about? What's a seeker-sensitive church all about? Someone tell me, you know, Greg? Okay, does anybody else know? What's a, what's a seeker-sensitive church? Yeah. You're attracting people? Yeah, well, I was thinking of this one, tract, where you're doing everything you can to attract people, to make it as desirable as possible. You dilute and you're doing everything humanly possible to make this as palatable as you can for our world. And you end up compromising the gospel. Here's Joshua. Look at how winsome is Joshua being. You listen to him. Okay, look. Choose this day who you will serve. If this is undesirable for you, then go your way. How, how winsome is that? It's not, it's not very, is it? In fact, I want you to listen to how Jesus sells the gospel. And we do well in this in our gospel preaching, friends, and retaining our distinctiveness up on the hill when we get there. Listen to him. This is strong stuff. I read this this week in my Bible reading. 
And it just challenged me afresh. The boy. And before I read this verse, I was moaning about how difficult things can be and, you know, carrying a cross, you know, and, you know, this is a you know, costly exercise being a Christian. And then I read this and I thought, goodness sake, Montez, are you a Christian or are you not? What do you want? Do you want to follow Jesus or don't you? Because here's what Jesus said. Listen to this. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Do you hear that? That is strong stuff, mate. It's not very winsome. And that's not very seeker sensitive. In the same way, any of you, it gets stronger, just in case you don't hit him first time round, it makes you stronger second time round. Listen to this. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything. How many things? Everything. He has cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus saying? This will be the death of you. If you follow me, this will be the death of you. You will lose everything and everyone. Okay? It's going to cost you everything you are. So make a choice. If that's too hard, well, you go back. But if you come forward with me, says Jesus, you must understand it will cost you everything. I told you this story a couple of weeks ago, so please forgive me for repetition. It's because I'm above 40 and you begin to forget and repeat yourself. Selwyn Hughes wrote Every Day with Jesus. Did you guys read that, don't we? <laughs> See, it was publicising it today. Selwyn Hughes was an old Ealing Pentecostal. That's my own church background. That's where I got saved. So we used to read it every day with Jesus. I've listened to his sermons. Wonderful preacher. Uh, this is one sermon I've listened to over 40 times, I'm sure. And he says in it, a story of a man, of a boxer who came to faith. And this boxer says uh, to one of his friends, he goes, if I ever find the guy who led me to Jesus, I'd sue him. Because he never told me it was going to cost me my life. He never told me I'd be fighting with sin. He never told me it would be the end of me. He said it obviously with a smile on his face. But you see his point? How many of us have been shortchanged what the Christian life is? Pam, come to Jesus and he'll fix your life and your existence and your grandkids and your future will just be wonderful. Well, mostly it is. It's a wonderful journey. It is, Pam, it is. Because we have a joy that transcends sorrow. Okay? We have a joy that transcends sorrow. But the call then is, and 1, 2 Timothy 3, look, this is from the message, a paraphrase, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. Look, I need to finish, I said half an hour, so let me just try and wrap up. I'll be really quick now. I'm putting the challenge to you as Joshua puts the challenge to the Israelites as we move forward into our new home that we re-look at how we live in the Christian life. And Joshua says to them, look, make your mind up which way you're going. And we're putting that challenge afresh to us. Are we really serious about Jesus? Because he will continue to be tough. But before we consider walking away, if you're sitting there thinking, actually, if Jesus is really that hard, maybe I'll just go back. I'll sneak away because they won't notice, you see, because by the time we go there, hopefully there'll be lots of new people. If I sneak off, nobody will know. Hey, before you consider doing that, I want you to hear what Peter says to Jesus when Jesus asks them if they want to leave him. Look at this, John 6, it just preaches this enigmatic sermon that nobody understood about eating him and drinking him. 
and, and they've all left him apart from these 12. And Jesus turns around and says to them, do you want to leave me too? Now that I'm caught into the chase and preaching things as they are, do you want to go too? Because 20,000 others have gone. How many people did Jesus feed? When he fed the 5,000, he wasn't 5,000, he was about 20,000. Why was it about 20,000? Because it was women and children. Okay, so at least 20,000 people have now left him because they wanted the food and the food was good. The seeker-sensitive food was great. But as soon as he gave them the real gospel, eat me, drink me, they all left. Okay, which means you can have a church of 50,000 people, but it doesn't mean they're all going to get to heaven. Okay. Uh, there's a difference between the visible and, in, and invisible church. And so then Simon Peter turns around and says to him, when he says, do you want to leave me too? And he says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What's Peter saying? What's his point? There's nowhere to go. There's no option. So I may be selling you a hard gospel, but guys, you, there is nowhere else to go. What, well, do you want to go back to Satan? To his slavery? Oh, he may give you candy for a few weeks, but then you'll, then you'll end up in hell with him forever. You see, there's nobody else to go to. There's nowhere else to go. It's, it's, it's Jesus, or there's nothing. Uh, I, say, I love these words. When Peter... This is the quintessential mark of salvation, isn't it? Peter realizes, Lord, what are you talking about? You're all we've been wanting. You're the author of life. You are everything. Where do you want us to go? And so ends Job. What does Job say about him? In all his trial, in all his troubles, when all God has taken his family away from him, God has taken his wealth away from him, God has taken his health away from him, he was God, he sanctioned the devil. When God has done all that to him, what does Job turn around and say? Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Because where else can we go? Or to who? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, it may look easier, and I doubt it won't be, I doubt it won't be easier. It will be easier. But to who are we going to go to? For what? Don't give up on Jesus. Let's make the move. Let's move forward together and hold on to him. And the last thing I want to say to you, and I'll close with this, Hebrews 3. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had a first. Which simply means, and I'm cutting, I'm out of time here, that we've really only got Jesus, and it's really only real, there's really only heaven ahead if we hold on to what we've got. We can't look back on baptisms. You know, we baptized Misha recently, and we baptized. And Lee recently, and it was a lovely occasion. We're, by the way, we're already planning a new baptism at the new place, okay? Late January, get ready for the baptism. Get your trunks, okay? Uh, right. Is, and the point is simple, is that we cannot anchor our hope of heaven in a past action. It's got to be present, and it's got to be ongoing. In one sense, please don't be offended by this. I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus 
I don't care, or Jesus doesn't care, how many times you've been baptised. If at that moment you've given up on him. We must hold on firmly to the end, the hope we have. Have you ever given a child a candy or a sweet and then tried taking it back off them? <laughs> That's what you must do. Cherish it. Hold on to it. Preserve it. Fuel it. Plant it in a good location. Look at it. Live it every day. Grasp it like your life depends on it. Because here's the thing. It does. It does. Hold on to it. Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ. If it's conditional, we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had. May God give us grace as we move forward as a church, as a family, as brother and sister. Uh, as, look, we're not just brothers and sisters to each other, we, we, we're mothers and sons to one another. Have you ever think you lack family? You ever felt lonely? Hey, you don't, <laughs> didn't you realise that this is your family? Remember what, what Jesus said when they brought his mom and his brothers to him? He says, here's your mom and here's your brother. And what did he say? These are my mother and brother and sister. We are a family. And so let's go forward. Let's move together. Don't get left behind. Let's go together. And let's begin afresh. A city on a hill. <laughs> wow, horrible. City on a hill. And let's let our light shine before all men in that community. And may they look to Living Word Church and see us as the example of New Testament Christianity. And may other churches seek to follow our example.